0: Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And as you'll notice, there is no intro music. I'm out on the road um, for a couple of weeks, so uh, I don't, I'm don't. i using backup equipment, and I don't have the ability to put the music in. And I actually got a question about the music. Uh, anyway, number 167. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com, or you can put them on Podbean, which is the comments section for old school guns. And uh, I will read them and I will get them, get you an answer. So let's go first things first. Um, everyone has heard about the leaked documents which essentially paint a picture that some of us suspected but nobody was telling us. Uh, Nobody from the mouthpieces in government, the clown show which is the Democratic Party leadership or really the dishonest brokers at the Defense Department were telling us the truth. The truth is there's a very pessimistic outlook for the conflict in ukraine from the ukrainian side uh very pessimistic assessments that the major combat systems air defense ground maneuver ammunition you know logistics that any of those are, are actually functioning or they're either in short supply or they're they're practically uh, uh neutralized and would be become ineffective and the, the amount of aid coming in is, is never going to be sufficient to overcome the Russians' ability to put men and material into the battle. Um, European countries, the NATO countries, are giving dribs and drabs of, of armored vehicles and all these other symbolic gestures. But it's going to take more than 20 or 30 or even 100 tanks to make to, to try to reverse this. And I don't think you're going to dislodge the Russian army. Uh, Every European war, probably for the last thousand years, maybe even longer, has had a territory adjustment. And we, I think the world has to realize there will be a territory adjustment to settle this one. There just will be. And, the, and it's not going to be Russia giving up territory. <laughs> that's that's not going to happen. So you got to live with the reality and understand what's going on there. But these documents point out something that's that's very, very disappointing. And that is the government's assessment, internal assessments and what they know to be true. Uh, they're not sharing with the people. Instead, they're just asking for more money that we're pouring into this. And we are dangerously close to a conflict with the largest land power in Europe, who has weapons of mass destruction and and a lot of other things. And, you know, this is not going to, on on the current course, it's not going to end well. My suspicion is that there will be, at some point, the Russian army will mount a decisive operation and they will either take a huge part of the country or they will take the capital. Uh, they've certainly learned from their mistakes. And they've drawn in the Battle of Bakhmut, which is which is ending as as we're speaking really. That is being well, they're just drawing they're drawing them in and destroying them and uh, they're drawing in the ukrainians and destroying their combat power so they've learned a lot from the beginning of the war you kind of remember russians haven't fought a conventional style war since world war ii so you know the mistakes that they've made are in some ways understandable um, in some ways they're not understandable to us because we have combat experience in the invade the iraq war the gulf war the Vietnam War, several contingency operations, Grenada, Panama, and other things. So we we have a, a slightly different view, and we have some experience that we could draw on. They they did not, but they're adjusting quickly. And uh, you know, to laugh at them and think that they're fools is really the lowest form of propaganda. And a lot of the news we see comes from Ukrainian Ministry of Truth and propaganda, and so you know you can't trust it. There's no good war reporting right now, and that's what would make some honesty of our government officials even more important. Uh, just take in, um, take in as a case, the T fifty-five tanks. Everybody's laughing. Russia is bringing T fifty-five tanks, which are, you know, an immediate. They were the immediate World War II successor to the T-34. Everybody's laughing at them that they're bringing these things out of mothballs. There's, I don't know, between 250 and 500 of these things that they still have. And so everybody's laughing, saying, well, you know, so they've lost so many tanks that now they have to use these old relics. What they don't understand is several things. First of all, anybody who's talking about a T-55 versus a modern tank is an idiot, and they don't know anything about armored warfare. Let me kind of tell you how this is. First of all, the Ukrainians themselves have like a brigade of T-55 tanks, so if they were completely useless, the Ukrainians would have jettisoned them, but but they're not. They realize that, you know, a tank is effective. No matter how old it is, it still has certain attributes that, that can't be uh, can't be ignored the other thing is you know in armored warfare most of the things you run across on the battlefield are not tanks so if you're in a tank most of what you see out there are not enemy tanks they're armored fighting vehicles of different kinds they can be armored personnel carriers uh, command vehicles, things that haul mortars, they could be self-propelled artillery, they could be a whole gamut of things. 9 out of 10 things you see as an armored vehicle crewman are not tanks. <clears throat> so what does that have to do with the T-55? Well the most effective anti-tank weapon of all time was the humble and lowly Sturmgeschütz dry, the Stug Three, which was a German anti-tank weapon it was a vehicle it did not have a traversing turret it had a gun that was just good enough to inflict either a kill or or damage on Allied tanks but they were easy to produce they were low to the ground they had they could climb all over different types of terrain they were easy to maintain. All of these are also attributes of the T-55. So the T-55 can be used as a modern version or at least a conceptual descendant of the lowly Stug-3. Not very sophisticated, not essentially extremely powerful, but its 100mm gun can wipe out 9 out of 10 vehicles it's going to see, and when it does see an enemy tank, at close range it it does have the capability to damage it to the point where it won't be able to move, known as a mobility kill. If you hit any tank in the treads, um, it's going to stop rolling forward and then it becomes a static pillbox. And one of two things happens, either the crew stays in it as long as they can, Um, and fights or they abandon the vehicle because they know that some other weapon system is going to see it and it's not moving it can't hide any place and target it so even even a primitive weapon can sometimes be effective against a very sophisticated one you know we see that a lot of times with when people talk about you know the endless banter of gun tubers and everything else about rifles, about military rifles. An example would be uh, various World War II and, and post-war rifles, battle rifles especially, in, you know, .30-06 or 7.62 NATO. Um, these are tremendously effective weapons still, even though they're some of them are approaching 60 and 70 years old. They're still very effective. They can do everything they could do when they came off the assembly line, and and a lot of these, the ones in most people's hands are modern descendants of those. You know, usually uh, conformal to to whatever laws. In in the USA, it's uh, semi-automatic as opposed to select fire, but functionally, for every other reason, they're 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 pretty much the same and uh, they they are effective. You can defend yourself with one very handily and in some cases are even optimal. Um, old weapons don't degrade. If newer weapons come out and they may be optimized and they may be a little better but the old that doesn't degrade the capabilities of the old weapons and a lot of times uh, people forget that. So I would be very very careful about laughing at the use of something like a T-55 now it's true, it could be put at the spearhead and squandered and and basically become a shooting target uh, for more advanced tanks. That could happen. But my suspicion is that they will be used in a very crafty way and they will be used to exploit their advantages, uh, especially if they're city and house to house fighting what we used to call mount military operations in urbanized terrain. Um, it's very nice to have a vehicle that can come up, pound a building, and then kind of slip away. Um, those, those are very valuable, and a hundred millimeter gun will do a lot of damage to any building that's out there, um, or any fortification, or any strong point. Um, it's very, very it's going to be very very difficult, given the combat ranges that you see in the in the Ukraine. It's going to be very difficult to get a lot of kills on on very small mobile vehicles. And we know the T-55 was designed to cross that kind of terrain. Got wide tracks. Um, it's, it's comparatively lightweight for a tank. Very small, hard to hit. Um, it's it may be. A surprising weapon when people see how effective it is and time will tell but that's my assessment I think it will prove to be no joke when the shootings over and everybody's scrambling for the lessons learned and and all the facts surrounding you know this that and the other thing they will they will not laugh at the T-55 being employed that's my assessment okay let's uh let's talk about some good gun stuff i would i have to talk about the first thing and that is rhineland arms rhineland arms uh they've produced an fg-42 clone the fg-42 being the german machine rifle of the second world war um there are already some um of these out there, full caliber, you can get them in eight millimeter Mauser, or I believe you can get them in .30-06, or or perhaps it's 308 7.62 NATO. Um, you can get those, and they're they're pretty true to the original. I mean, they they are from you know unless you're examining the markings, they're they're basically indistinguishable from the real thing. Um, this Rhineland Arms is not. It is in fact a blowback nine millimeter carbine which has a uh, magazine that protrudes from the left side looks kind of like a sten gun kind almost set up you know it's a horizontal magazine coming out that takes about 30 rounds so and it takes the ar-15 style nine millimeter magazine um, it is shaped like an fg-42 it has nowhere near the the heft and bulk um, and at MSRPs for $920. Uh, pretty good, really. I mean, um, considering the Henry Homesteader is <laughs> in the same price range, um, you know, it, it is not going to fool anyone. You look at it, and I mean, they've done some things that I kind of disagree with. They've um, they put a Picatinny rail on top, so you can easily mount whatever kind of optic. Um, it, it does have a wood fore end, but it it does not. It's not going to fool anybody, but but it is going to provide people, and I'm one of these people who cannot afford an original or even one of the semi-automatic versions that are on the market today, because these these things cost four and five thousand um, dollars. It it provides something a fun gun anyway um, a gun that would be fun to have in your collection so it's, it does serve serve that purpose but it in no way shape or form is going to look like the um, the original it's it's just sort of what it reminds me of is they used to have a kit for the Ruger 1022 that would make it look like a probably a three-quarter scale uh, MG42 and this reminds me of that this is that type of thing it you look at it and you know immediately it's not the real thing but but it's interesting because it looks enough like it that it's that it's intriguing so it would be intriguing Um, now I'm the person who um, you know I bought one of the ATI STG 44s in 22 long rifle Um, they did actually a very good job with that I Except for the finish wear that the originals usually have. And um, if you look at it on the side where the magazine button is not, on the magazine where you load the 22, you have to depress a button to, to make the follower go lower so you can put the rounds in. But if you don't see that, you look at it from the left side instead of the right side, um, It's you have to be very close to understand that it's not the original STG. Um, Weight-wise, it's probably a little lighter because of the materials used, but the controls and all the other things are, are effectively the same. And uh, Now, it uses a completely different blowback method. It, the, the internals of the um, ATI TG 44 look more like a sub-caliber kit for an AR-15 that shoot twenty two long rifle. It's that, that type of thing. It's not, not interchangeable, but it's the same, same sort of design. But they did a very, very good job with that. I mean, it, it you look at it, it looks like the real thing. The Rhineland Arms FG42 does not. you You immediately look at it and say, what an interesting looking gun. It looks sort of like an FG42, but you know it's not. It's not immediately. So I think that'll be interesting. I don't know. I would say that if you want one, I would say buy one because I don't know those are gonna be on the market all that long um, and you know it'll be interesting to see how they how they go but I don't see that as being something they keep in production for years and years uh, I just don't think there's going to be the market for it what people will find is that if you're serious about a 9 millimeter carbine and I don't know if you're serious about a 9 millimeter carbine you would even consider one of these but it, it will handle, it. most people will find them to be very awkward compared to the other 9mm carbines on the market. And there's just not a great market for awkward guns. I think they found that out with the STG-44 in 22 long rifle. Um, most people, myself included, the STG-44 is a dream gun. You know, you just um, absolutely legendary gun. And uh, when you put your hands on it, though, you realize that it's it's a little awkward it's not as great as you would think it doesn't quite live up to the legend it's it's you know it's a different it's a different experience than what you would imagine so anyway we'll see how that goes and speaking of (laughs) unusual um, carbines high point has done something interesting it's not very good but it's interesting Uh, High point carbine and 30 super carry. And first you say, that's the silliest idea I've ever heard of. Why would you want a 32 caliber carbine? Well, 30 super carry is is, is kind of a a reasonably powerful round. So that's not, it's not a joke. And if you had a 30 super carry pistol, I suppose you could, you could justify to yourself that that makes sense. Um, It doesn't, but you could justify it. The then you look at the immediate downside, and the immediate downside is well, you know, nine millimeter ammunition is so much cheaper available, and you know, the the, the opinions out there, uh, but it's probably more effective, and so therefore you know, why would you want this? And I think that's kind of where things are going to lay. I mean, I think it's, people will think it's cool. People will think it's interesting. But um, I think that the, the ammunition cost and availability is going to be a huge problem. And that will be insurmountable. Uh, I mean, you even see the 5-7 weapons are kind of dying out. And I say dying out, they're just not lighting the market on fire because... The ammunition is so expensive, and all ammunition has gone up, but at least 9mm and 5.56 are affordable, and they're performing for the cartridges in their class. They're performing, face it, 5.56 outperforms 5.7. 9mm stacks up well against things like 5.7 and 30 Super Carry, so uh, that's, that's, that's kind of where it's at. I think far more interesting was the 10mm auto high point carbine I still wouldn't want one because I have <laughs> I have doubts about and reservations about its durability um, and you know frankly I I personally have better options in my gun safe so there's no reason for me to get one but I could understand some logic of of saying 10mm is a powerful pistol cartridge which is well suited for a carbine uh, I don't think 30 Super Carry can make that same claim. Ooh, well, back on the uh, back on the gun things, um, boy, is the the, the national me- mouthpiece media, the liberal mouthpiece mouthpiece media, and and the Washington clowns, the Washington clown show, in the administration. Uh, they're, they're ginning up AR-15 hate. I mean, there have been several shootings over the last few weeks. Um, but even when they don't involve an AR-15, they insinuate that it does. And essentially, you know, the country is becoming more and more polarized. This is another polarizing issue. Um, firearms rights should not be a political issue. but But here we are. They are. So think about that when you vote. Think about these people. Um, they have to be voted out of office. Uh, states like Colorado are slipping away, and they did it to themselves. I mean, they legal, they were one they were the first state, I believe, legalized recreational marijuana. They drew all the dirtbag potheads, so now those people are tipping the scales and you know bringing in all their progressive policies. So. You know, to call Colorado even a purple state, I think, is a stretch. I think it's a, it is a blue state. It's gone from red state to blue state, and it's because of their own stupidity. Um, They never should have voted in the legal marijuana. Regardless of what you think about it, the, the fact of the matter is it was going to draw a very, very hostile demographic when it comes to gun rights and other things. So that's what happened. So the AR-15 hate is out there. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls up. We, we could wind up in a country where, you know, nearly half the states, they're going to be outlawed, and the other half of the states are going to be welcomed with open arms. Um, much like uh, constitutional carry. Uh, Florida recently did it. Um, I think Alabama just has just done it, and so is Nebraska. That's going to be definitely a red state, blue state. The only exception to that, uh, I do believe New Hampshire has it. There's there's one northeast state that has it, but uh, uh, for the rest of them, we'll see. I don't think it'll ever happen in places like California or perhaps Colorado. You know, there are a lot of former red states that are uh, just losing ground. And I don't think those laws are going to going to be there. We'd like to welcome a uh, new listener, Steve. Uh, Steve asked several questions. Um, the first two I'll get to right away. Um, and that is, uh, what is the music I use? And we're going to address the music in an episode that does not have the music. I found it on a soundboard. It... Uh, it was a cartoon, believe it or not, it was a cartoon theme from the 1960s for a show called Johnny Quest. And this was performed by various artists. So that that's kind of what um, what we use as the intro music. It's really a great piece of music, I think. I, I, I heard it and I really, really liked it. So I believe you can buy the DVDs and uh, I've seen a couple of them and they're they're pretty good actually they're they're really good for um, they're very firearms friendly and very very wholesome and good so if you have small ones that's probably a that would be a great present the uh, the johnny quest the first the complete series i think is what it is next one is is there a way to search old episodes to get particular subjects and unfortunately since we're cheap shoestring chintzy operation that is that is not possible what is possible is just to go back and just click and there's there's some brief show notes that kind of touch on uh, what each episode is about and that's about the best you can do Um, you know like like everything else podcasting is a growing you, you learn and grow and do better. So the earlier ones are probably a lot crappier than, than you want to admit. So I haven't actually listened to some of the early ones because, you know, I don't really want to cry myself to sleep. So anyway, um, but have fun. You can look at those and, and pick up different subjects. All right. Uh, another question was talking, talking about ear and eye pro, um, ear and eye pro i'm pretty old-fashioned sometimes i like the electronic muffs i really like those but i use every every ear protection and i'm a muff guy i'm an ear muff guy um i never really went the reason is i since i have to use shooting glasses um I never really got into the ones where, hey, it's just the ones that fit in your ear. And there's a ways to get the custom fits and all that. The, those are all great. My problem is the way I lose stuff and the amount of stuff um, you wind up hauling to the range sometimes can be daunting. And you look at it and you say, oh, man, adding just one more thing, one more small thing that I could lose. Um, it may not be that those may not be optimal, but I like the muffs, I like the electronic muffs, and I use them a lot of times with foamy earplugs, because the foamy earplugs will protect your ears um, if you happen to be caught without with the muffs off or whatever else. So I, I go double. I use the foamy plugs, and then I use a uh, uh, a good quality earmuff, and that's, that's kind of how I do it. Now, for rifle shooting, the earmuffs were always kind of a pain in the butt, because they could kind of interfere with your um, stock well, you know, your your face, in, you know, being plopped on the stock. But they now make them where they're very slim line and that's that's really not much of a problem anymore. So anyway, uh, that's that's what I do with ear and iPro. Uh, iPro, my, my thing with iPro is it has to be, some of the cheaper ones and some of the tinted ones you know that's kind of a um, trial and error thing because everyone's an individual. To me, they have to. You have to be able to focus. On that front, that front sight has to be sharp, whether it's a pistol or rifle. And if it's sharp, you're going to do very very well. You're going going to shoot tight groups because you can focus on that sharp clear sight. So that's that's where I pro is. If you need a prescription or something to do that, I'd go ahead and do that. Depending where you live in the country, um, I was able to get my optometrist to help me with that. And um, you know, they were they were pretty very very helpful. They were very helpful. And uh, however, if you're in one of the places where people are are gone nutso about guns you you might not have the same luck you might have to travel a little bit to some place a little more rural where people actually understand what's going on so that is the that is the thing with ear and ipro um i don't know if you saw the i i did not go, i have not gone to an nra convention and meetings or whatever they call it uh, uh for for a long time it's been about 20 years actually and uh, I, I went to the very last one. Charlton Heston was at. That's 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 it. Um, but uh, understand that uh, Donald Trump promised national reciprocity, reciprocity, reciprocity uh, for for carrying. Now that won't go for constitutional carry, but it'll go for permits. You know that's a big promise. I don't know that he can do that. I suppose it could get a national law, but it would have to, you know, again, pass both houses and then get to his desk. But at least people are thinking about that. I put a couple other things I'd like to see on there. I'd like to see national constitutional carry. That they could do. As a matter of fact, they got probably a better chance of doing that than the reciprocity. Um, That would work. The other thing is take SBRs and silencers off the uh, NFA. You could probably do that by executive order, you know, just say, look, the technology has has outstripped this law from 1934, so let's, a 90-year-old law, let's just let it go. So, yeah, that's that's what I would want to see. All right, we will now get to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And the first question we have is what loads do you recommend for a J-Frame 38 Special? Well again uh, I'm pretty old school and a J-Frame 38 Special it usually has a it's not sometimes it's not even a two inch barrel it's like a one point what is it a 1.8 inch barrel or 1.85 1.87 inch barrel. So you're not going to you're not gonna get anything out of hollow points. You're probably not gonna get anything out of high velocity. I think the best loads that uh, and I, I can tell you what we do. Um, I like the 158s. You know, you get those in a standard loading. And they're they're pretty good. Or the old target wad cutters are good also. I would not go with any of the expensive boutique ammo, just simply because I don't think it'll perform out of those short barrels. But they're great guns, and they've remained popular for, well, since the 1950s, because they are concealable, they're portable, and they're, pretty, they're reasonably powerful for their size. Okay, here's our next question. Did you see the 9-hole Speedway on the M1 Rifle episode, and what did you think of it? Well, I'll be honest with you, there's very few gun tubers I watch. Um, The one that I watch the most is probably this 9-hole. They got two guys who are just, you know, they kind of just shoot rifles, and they just kind of give you their impressions, and, uh, you know, they're entertaining to watch. None none of that is good for anything other than entertainment. so i i think they're entertaining i i i do agree with their conclusions that even though it is nine plus pounds and comparatively long the m1 rifle excelled at essentially close range combat which was zero to 350 meters Um, the m1 rifle excelled at that and it kind of goes back to my my uh comments on the t55 you know the m1 rifle does the same thing today that it did in 1936 37 38 all the way to 1945 it is extremely effective and people who used it liked it they liked it a lot and uh, that's not just comparing it to bolt action rifles that's comparing it to to other weapons even later weapons um, there were a lot of people who preferred the m1 it had a lot of great attributes, and uh, you know the sights, the trigger, the loading mechanism—all of those things were were excellent on the M1 rifle. It, it, there's not really anything about the M1 rifle that is not excellent. Um, can't think of a thing. Uh, you, people can complain about its weight, but when you're shooting a 30-06, that extra weight is is nice <laughs> it's it's nice so uh, there's nothing about the M1 that is anything less than excellent so um, and they just demonstrated that in the in their video I mean they, they amply demonstrated that and uh, it shows you what a fine piece of equipment and the, what fine quality and high standard of manufacture and materials went into that whole system It's absolutely... it's a masterpiece. It really is a masterpiece. Okay... How overmatched was the Krag Carbine by the 7mm Mauser in the Spanish-American War? That said SA War, but I think they mean Spanish-American War. Um, Well, clearly in, in open ranges, the the Spanish Mauser was flatter shooting, and it had clip loading, so even though I'm not a huge fan of clip loading, uh, the Mauser clip loading system because fumble finger under under pressure, even if you're quite well trained, it seems like you can do a lot of fumbling, but it certainly was was more handy than the crag. But when you get into the jungles of Cuba and the jungles of the Philippines, the crag carbine was, I think, a better weapon to have because number one you can load it in the dark easier and you say well okay that's great if you're at night but most of the stuff took place in the day well when you're in jungle you can be in very dark places because there's what's called the canopy and in some places there's triple canopy which means there's three layers of trees and branches above you and the, and the floor is, is actually quite dark so um, the crag was an excellent weapon there it's short it's powerful, um, it's easy to handle, and it's easy to load like in the in the dark. So uh, the Crag Carbine was excellent. Crag Carbine hung around a little bit longer than the Crag rifle did because uh, cavalry units were <laughs> a little, they were reticent to give them up right away. So um, the newer Springfield rifles went to the uh, um, 1903 Springfield rifles went to the you know, infantry formations first, and then kind of caught up with the cavalry a little bit later. So the cavalry kind of had these things till about 1909, 1910, and they liked them. There, there was no. It was certainly a generational leap above the trapdoor Springfield single-shot cavalry carbine, and it was you know comparable to the other carbines that were uh, um, available around the world. So it was it was actually a good gun. It actually was a better. It actually was better suited for what it was used for um, than was the Crag rifle. Here, next one. <laughs> Why is the M9 pistol detested by the US military? Well I don't know that it's detested by everyone. Uh, I never heard people talk very well about it. Um, I was one of those people, I was in when the 1911 was phased out and the M9 was phased in, so I was issued 1911s and I was issued M9s. I I wanted nothing to do with the M9 because I thought it was, you know, just a cheesy um, double action automatic that I wanted no part of. When I actually got it and shot it, my opinion changed and I thought it's actually a very fine pistol. Um, The M9 is a, a really a very fine pistol. Um, so, but a lot of people did not see that there was initially people felt the way I did that anything that would displace the 1911-45 automatic that you automatically disliked because of it's displaced a, a treasured piece of military equipment, which is still a great and treasured piece of military equipment. And uh you know they didn't trust the smaller caliber nine millimeter that was the the after-action reports from the Gulf War and the Afghanistan Uh, let me caveat this the the nine millimeter was routinely criticized the M9 was routinely criticized for its caliber and for the fact that uh, um, by having the open slide top that you know sand could get in it. Um, my own experience was that that was never a problem um, and I know that there were some the magazines that went out the Checkmate magazines some people complained with those. I used both Checkmate and Beretta magazines and never had a problem. Um, I would change my um, magazines weekly inspected and if I was out and there was a sandstorm or something I would immediately uh, check my weapon as soon as conditions permitted so I I did not have a problem, I had full confidence in the M9, it was great a great pistol Um, the fact that it's been replaced by another 9mm doesn't seem to me to solve the criticisms that the caliber was small so, you know I mean you just take that for what it's worth I will say that probably most of the people who criticize the M9 pistol have never fired one in anger, which means, or pulled one on someone in anger, or anything else. So they're they're really kind of talking. They may be combat veterans and just coming back from the war zone, but they their opinions on that pistol may not be very informed. So that's what I would say. Uh, M9 pistol, as far as I know, is basically completely gone. There may be some out in reserve units or something, but I do believe that the uh, SIG has rapidly uh, been able to equip the force with the new pistol. It took took a long time to get M9s to fully displace the 1911s, but it seems that the process is a lot faster with the uh, M17 pistol compared to uh, uh, the fielding of the M9. It looks like it's come out a lot faster. So we'll see how that goes, and I'm looking forward to the day when the CMP is uh, selling surplus M9s, the way they are the 1911s. So, all right. Okay, next question. Do you still have backup iron sights on your personal AR-15? the answer is yes I certainly do Um, I believe that the uh, AR-15 platform is very very conducive to iron sights and I do keep backup iron sights on my my AR-15s that I use optics on um, just simply because it it just seems to make sense Um, one time I and I've told this story before one time I had the optics go out and hey you know it's it's game over now if it's just a range toy and you really don't care then you you don't have a problem you can you can just say well this is not a very good day but if it's a weapon you're depending on that you could possibly use in a self-defense situation or some some other type of critical um, critical use um, i would say that you if your optics fail, um, having the backup and I just have the pop-up rear sight having that pop-up rear sight is going to be uh, something very very handy and indispensable in that that particular situation. So um, yeah I go with them. Uh, you know there's there's some people who say no I'd, I'd rather not use that I'd rather use the uh, rail space and put a, um, put a magnifier or uh, dispense with the electronic sights and the magnifier and just use an LPVO in which case you can kind of go to some offset sights but uh, usually when you put an optic on that's that's usually it no people usually don't put uh, uh, any kind of a backup sight on it uh, unless it's some sort of competition use where they could be shooting close and far and you know the it depends (sighs) The the only debit of the AR-15 is you can turn it into a contraption uh, fairly quickly because there are enough aftermarket gizmo manufacturers who will sell you all kinds of things, and if you put these on your rifle you you wind up with something that's uh, conceptually probably pretty brilliant, but in execution very clunky and clumsy. And anyone who thinks that iron sights are dead, I would just say, look at, take some time and look up images from, you know, the Ukraine, and you will see many, many, many rifles with just the, you know, and they're Kalishnikovs. in almost every case. You will see many, many, many of them with the, you know, just standard Kalashnikov iron sights, which are you know nowadays one of the less sophisticated but still effective sights out there and uh, you know it's it's going to be a an interesting thing to see if if you know one of the interesting after action review things will be did rifle sights matter did did the rifle sight did it matter if it was iron sights or electrical optical prismatic sites, holographic sites. It'll be interesting to see. I know I prefer the holographic sites, not a real huge fan of the red dot sites, but that's just personal preference. Some people like them quite a bit, and I've actually seen some that are, that are nice. I just prefer the holographic sites. Um, so it'll be quite interesting to see if there's any kind of analysis done as to you know what is really the equipment you you want to have and I think you know sadly it's drawn on long enough so that it's been through the summer it's been through the winter and uh, you know how does cold affect these things how does moisture affect these things in the long run because most of our experience with it has been in kind of a dry climates and for kind of short duration mission type things not someone sitting in a trench for a month in, in mud and squalor and, and, uh, freezing, you know, rain and everything else. So it'll be interesting to see, um, what the practical, what the practical answer to all those questions is. Okay. And here's our last question. How important was bayonet reach? in the First World War, Second World War, and today. Um, I assume that by bayonet reach, there was a... At one time it was believed that the longer rifle and longer bayonet you had, that that conveyed an advantage over an opponent which the overall length of their rifle and bayonet was shorter. That you could stick them and they didn't have enough reach to stick you. Uh, I think that was based Predominantly in the late 19th century where you saw a lot of long bayonets um, through World War One, you know, that's World War One It kind of kind of ceased because I think they realized that um, a lot of the long bayonets and long rifles, the, the, um, the theory behind that was probably proffered by individuals who were used to fencing. Because a lot of the European officers, they fenced. You know, they, one of the cool things to have at that time was a saber scar on your cheek. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> Wouldn't, I'm glad that's not a fad. Um, but anyway, they 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 all fenced, and and it was bayonet fighting was seen as a form of fencing. And uh, I think the realities the harsh realities of 20th century combat proved that the bayonet was, you know, the, the bayonet reach was not ever a factor. So the bayonets became shorter and more knife-like and rifles became shorter and the bayonet became a little more utilitarian So to the point where the Kalashnikov bayonet and the... Uh, um, U.S. Army, what is it, the M9 bayonet, um, you know, are kind of functional utility knife, wire cutter type things, and, uh, you know, they still operate as bayonets when they need to, but, um, they're actually, especially the M9 bayonet, you you can mount it on an M4, but it doesn't work very well because the uh, front sight post is a little too far back, so you lose, (laughs) you lose even more of the, uh, the reach, but, um, I would say that you know that was the that was the theory and it was basically just proven wrong and and weapons and bayonets became progressively shorter until what we have today which is about a six probably what is it about a six or seven inch blade at the most whereas we used to have 16 and inch blades and and perhaps even longer so uh, I think another reason and this is a uh, just purely speculative but bayonets are usually very very high quality pieces of kit and if you have one that's 16 inches long um, that's a lot of steel that's a lot of manufacturing effort if you have two eight inch ones or two yeah two eight inch blade bayonets uh, you've basically gotten two for one there so you can produce twice as many Um, some of the countries france most notably and then, actually, even the uh, the Soviets, the Russians, and then the Soviets, and and copied by the Chinese, went to the kind of triangular bayonet, which was, you know, just kind of a piece of, it just a point really. It doesn't have any knife um, attributes to it. They use that on the Moisen, the Gant, the SKS. Uh, the Chinese used it on their AKs. Um, the French used it on the uh, Berthier and also the Labelle, just a lot easier to make. And, and the British used a, a spike bayonet on their uh, Lee Enfields. So there were a lot of uh, a lot of easy, you know, kind of solutions. I think the people who proffered the long bayonets in World War One and believed in bayonet reach and kind of fencing would have been appalled to see these later kind of spike nail you know, bayonets, which I, just as a th- only were effective as a thrusting weapon and not as anything else. So that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And again, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, which is our carrier. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.